You're listening to Draft Chaff. Coming up this week. Feel free to cut me off, interrupt me, get in and let me have it. I know which cards are good. You would end up with an absolute mess. But it's more than that, right? Because if I answered that question for this, I would just ignore the dinosaur text. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 179. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Something funny actually happened on my way back from school today. I found this watch on the grounds. I noticed it was kind of busted. I'm thinking I'm just going to trash it. Like, there's no way you can fix that, right? <laughs> that was it. That was it. <laughs> no, wait, stop. <laughs> Don't throw it away. It might be worth something. <laughs> there you go. That was my slam dunk. <laughs> Perfect. Marshall, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you here. We're big fans. Ben and uh, Zach, thanks for having me back. It's been a while, but uh, it's really nice to see you guys. Yeah, likewise. I think maybe three years it's been since we last had yeah. you on the show. It's been yeah, quite a while. Right. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I'm, I think it's awesome that you guys are trucking along and uh, still doing the show. You know, most shows really of any type don't don't make it past. I mean, really, most of them don't make it past, you know, a few episodes, but getting to the point that you guys are at here is a real accomplishment. So congrats. Thank you. Thanks. We're just as surprised as anyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we have a pretty special episode for you. Um, we are going to, of course, jump into our housekeeping and then we'll go through uh, ben, I'll let you kind of tee up what we're going to be talking about here as far as main topic. But before that, of course, the usual housekeeping. If you're not already in the Discord, do check that out. It's the best place to be to chat all things MTG. Come say hi to us. We're in there daily. Uh, you can talk about your trophies, your you know pick orders, different things like that. We also have our new Bounty Boards channel where we're giving away real packs for just reaching achievements within the game. So if you're playing Magic, none of them are win-based. Like we want to see some shenanigans, so jump in there, check out those bounties, and uh, we'd love to see you over there as well. You can find the link to that in uh, the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us each and every week, especially those of you stuck with us through our rebrand. That was really awesome. Really appreciate you guys. Um, lots of cool stuff over there. We've got our custom draft chaff hero stickers that we have. Uh, ben, I think we're going to be getting proofs of those coming in soon so we can start showing what they're going to look like but essentially mm -hmm. our draft chaff hero kind of redesigned in a sticker form for our patrons there and then of course uh, access to live draft chaff cube drafts and of course the more funding we get through patreon the more we can kind of give back in terms of those bounty boards for rewards so yeah if you want to check that out it's at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff all right ben main topic what are we talking about today so longtime listeners of the show are familiar with vector theory. It's kind of our own brand, our own heuristic. Now, vector theory, it's sort of my baby. I, I love this thing. But it's been a while since it was really put to a test. And I think it's about time I defended my thesis, right? So who better <laughs> than to critique a magic heuristic that's maybe looking to, to reach a wider audience than an expert of magic communication? Uh, and, and also just, you know, magic itself, Marshall Suckler. Yeah, I, I like this idea because, uh, you know, I'm vaguely familiar with it, but I like the idea of you saying, okay, here, here's what it is now. 
right? This is, this is the final form, you know, or current form or whatever. And then I get to kind of say, all right, well, what's working with this and what's not? Because we've got a bunch of these for LR, you know, heuristics that we've named or that are named after, you know, uh, like mental fallacies or things like that, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, helps you shore up a common pitfall. But it sounds like you've been pretty pretty aggressive with the uh with vector theory as as covering a lot more ground than something just specific that's exactly it this is a one-stop shop this is an all-in-one approach and i think maybe the only downside is that magic gets too easy once you know it (laughs) (laughs) oh wow that's that is a heck of a pitch right there well i'll tell you what you're you're already getting high marks for the salesmanship side of it like that's incredible (laughs) well thank you uh, let's jump into it. So th- this is maybe a new heuristic to some of you. Uh, my background is in physics and physics education. And I guess, uh, when I got my master's in physics, ed, I really learned a lot about how important communication is while you're learning something. And especially, uh, how disconnects in communication can really trip up people that are trying to learn something. In this case, that something is going to be magic, but I found a lot of cross applicability. So something that we noticed was that there was a discrepancy between the language and the actions of a lot of limited players, both pros and kitchen table players, household players, arena players, whatever. Let me give you an example of this discrepancy. Uh, You know how there's like a one and a white deal four to an attacking and blocking creature in basically every set? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, common limited advice is to play cheap interaction in your aggressive decks, right? Isn't this cheap interaction? Uh, shouldn't this be great in red-white beatdown? I mean, maybe that's what it might seem. But, I mean, somebody else might counter and say, well, actually, that type of card is best in blue-white decks. But wait a minute. In Wilds of Eldraine, blue-white was about tapping. Except it wasn't actually. The best-performing ones ended up being more control-based. Uh, and even now, early data from Lost Caverns of Ixalan suggests that blue-white has almost no interest in this type of effect. It's more like a, a cheap flyers deck or an artifacts deck. So then why was this card good in five-color woe decks? I mean, I mean, it, it, this is just a mess, right? I mean, mm-hmm. those five-color woe decks, they were like splashing this card off of uh, the, the Wilds card. So this this type of card can throw people for a loop, and so many different people can say so many different things about it. I mean, this could throw inexperienced players off, right? And sure. as a teacher, I know it's time to avoid that, uh, that type of discrepancy. So the, the big pitfall of this is that if you're a newer player and you hear one of these things, this card is good in blue-white, this card is good in uh, reactive decks, or that cheap interaction is good in red-white decks, you might hear any of these things and put this card in a deck where it doesn't belong and it will perform pretty poorly. And then through that experience, you will learn that your intuition is bad. And that's not something mm. that we necessarily want people learning. Worse, they might learn that they're just not very good at magic. And we really want to avoid that because that turns people off of the game entirely. So here's the solution. An all-in-one catch-all heuristic to resolve these issues, vector theory. So, Marshall, I've heard in your coverage, uh, sometimes you know questions to ask, even when you know the answers, just like the best lines of reasoning out there. So at any point for this next chunk, feel free to cut me off, interrupt me, get in and let me have it. Okay. 
Zach, you too, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk over you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ben. <laughs> okay, so let's talk vectors. In physics, all physical quantities fall into one of two categories. You have your scalars and you have your vectors. Scalars are an amount of stuff. Mass, distance, volume. This is just an amount of something. Energy, even. Now, vectors, they are an amount of stuff but also a direction associated with that amount of stuff. Force, momentum, displacement, these types of things, uh, they will have a direction associated with them, like right, positive, north, left, any of those things. So here's vector theory. Magic cards can also be modeled as having both a strength and a direction. Okay, so there's something inherent to it about how powerful or useful it is, but then there's also this idea of it being pointed at or to something. Exactly. Okay. And to determine a card's vector, you have to ask yourself the question, when is this card at its very best? Because let's be honest, in modern limited design, every card can have an impact. What do you mean to determine its vector? What is that? Mm. So to to determine its vector direction and its Ah. strength. So you might say, well, for a certain card, you could grab any random, you know, draft chaff card off of a table, look at it and say, well, when would this card be maximized? When would this card be at its best? Take like a four mana four or five with no other text on it. You can Mm -hmm. still craft a situation where that's at its best, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, these cards, similar to actual physics vectors, they interact. This is the whole superposition principle and everything. Basically, the vectors can add with each other or they can point against one another, cancel okay. each other out. Okay. So uh, I picked a good example. I think some cards are familiar with divination, quick study and chart, of course. Okay. When, uh, when would you say these cards are at their best? Any of the cheaper card draw spells? I mean, I don't know. I play them in a variety of decks. I guess I think about when they're not good more than when they are. But mm. generally speaking, I usually think of these in terms of wanting maybe one of these occasionally two, depending on, you know, the speed of the format or something, but usually not more. You know, you usually don't have that much room in your deck for things that don't affect the board that much. Um, mid-range decks trending towards the control end of things are, you know, tend to be where these can shine. Control decks can play them. Anything that's more assertive Almost anything that has any type of uh, critical mass synergy, you know, tribal decks, those type of things, those are out. Um, Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, that synergy happens to be based on drawing cards or something like that. Yeah. So that's kind of how I would, you know, frame those is aggressive decks don't want them. Super focused decks uh, on, you know, build arounds or synergistic strategies don't want them mid-range trending towards control and then through control probably you know they'll be happy with one of them now i'll I'll put you and also zach on blast a little here uh could you think of any reasons why one of these might be better let's say you just had a deck that was interested in one of these effects uh sure could you imagine why a deck would prefer one of these versus a different one yeah many many different ways i mean uh you know, quick study, if you could leave up, I mean, it's just better, you know, than divination, but also if yeah. you can leave up, uh, you know, counter spells and stuff, then it gives you that optionality of, 
you know, using a removal spell or a counter spell on your opponent's turn and failing that, being able to to translate that mana into some type of advantage in this state, in, in this case, cards. Um, charter course, you know, if you have uh, graveyard synergies, it can be beneficial. Exactly. You, you already know Vector Theory. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and I know these cards you mentioned. <laughs> well, you actually really know Vector Theory. Uh, Okay. I've, I've listened to an awful lot of limited resources. Uh, mm-hmm. I dare say hundreds of episodes. Okay. And I was actually going back and I just, I picked an episode at random. I, I really listened to uh, episode 693. I think I just hit the scroll wheel and just okay. on that one. Uh, it was your favorite decks from Shadows Over Innistrad uh, remastered. remastered. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, I want to pull some quotes from, from you from this episode. All right. Uh, th- this may sound kind of like vector theory. Leaning in towards the theme, uh, quote, having a plan, quote, in that direction, and Mm -hmm. quote, trying to do, all in reference to certain cards or certain decks. Feels like it kind of aligns, right? So what's the the contrast here? Like, if, so I hear what you're saying there, that that it's important to, like, highlight cards and, and contextualize them in into where they're going or where they would fit the best but what is that in contrast to like you you mentioned these scalers is that a is that just like the dumb way to look at it you know i don't mean (laughs) dumb person but i mean like the dumbed down version of that i've actually never even thought of that i suppose maybe scalar theory would be the exact wrong way yeah because when when i hear you say when you pitched it at the beginning as there's scalers and there's vectors i'm like okay i want to attach some Mm -hmm. uh card here card heuristic or card evaluation thing to each of them so that i can understand why vector matters in relation to scalar but then it feels like you've just kind of left scalar behind so maybe that's not really where where you were going you were saying look this area over here is the one that we're gonna kind of focus on but my brain already started to kind of break it down into two categories i guess uh, I see. Well, and so, you could you could talk about that too, right? In, in terms of just scalar being something that is an amount of stuff, you could look at mm-hmm. it in terms of magic as being this card is good, this card is bad, or this card is strong and this card is weak. Okay, that's that's an amount of information, but I the see. vector side of that would be well, when when is it strong? When is it good? When okay, is it so not? so they're actually not two separate things. It's one is a thing and then there's a venn diagram that goes around it that's the vector part that adds adds more context or whatever to it Mm -hmm. maybe scalars shouldn't even be part of the of the heuristic at all that's more just to tee up the idea of what a vector is but i I suppose uh yeah i mean and that could just be me by the way like that could just be me because i had never i didn't know what a scalar was and i was like oh i want to this sounds interesting but it makes sense if you're if you're just contextualizing what a vector is Mm -hmm. you know in there but to that regard, and what Zach said is right, um, I guess thinking about magic in terms of scalar would be the black and white version, uh, the black and white equivalent, where you only look at how, quote unquote, good a card is in a vacuum, never okay. applying context of what that okay. is in. Yeah, so I like, so the, the, where my brain goes in the modern context, right, of, of limited with this is this is something like going on 17 lands, looking up game and hand win rate, sorting mm-hmm. by that yeah. and saying the best blue common is this. And then just if you're if you're a scaler, you just go on and you draft and you say, well, here it is, the best blue common. And you, you're not paying any attention to anything else. But exactly. if you're vector, then you understand the context in which that card actually shines. Or even, as you mentioned, you know, with the divinations and stuff, 
sometimes they're not good. Like they're actively bad. Same thing with the white removal spell. You know, sometimes those cards, you know, would actually be one of the lowest performing cards in your deck if you did it. So that's a good contrast to make, I think, is just to say, all right, we've got some, because it is, you know, you have to do a lot of work just to get to the point where you can say this card is good or this card is powerful, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? I mean, it, like as you're pointing out here with Vector 3, it doesn't really mean that much to say that. Like, it does differentiate it from cards that are just objectively bad or where there's no realistic scenario in which they're good or where they have a very narrow use case where you'd probably feel comfortable telling a newer drafter, if you just never touch that card for the format, you'd probably be all right. You know, mm -hmm. th that level of differentiation is, of course, important, you know, but you're getting into the point where, you know, now you're talking to a player who plays a bit, who cares enough to listen to your podcast or mine who cares enough maybe to look things up on 17 lands or whatever. And you're starting to say, okay, I'm going to give you a much better tool here to differentiate good card, you know, caveman logic versus good card, but when and how, and, and in what scenario does this card jump up dramatically, right? You're this one archetype and it could jump up. So I like pointing to that a lot. Like that, that to me, that to me differentiates the good players from the great players at this point, because the data itself has become so easy to get. You yeah. used to have to come to me or you guys or somebody, you know, Lords Limited or a message board or something to just even have somebody say, here's the cards that are performing well or that we really think fit in this format or whatever. But now, you know, it's just 17 lands. We'll give you a truncated version of that. So now the focus, you know, I think for most of the mid to high level players is, well, how do I differentiate beyond that? If everybody knows what cards mm -hmm. are, quote, good, how do I do that? And the answer and is, is vector theory. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly And it. I think also Ben and Ben's going to break this down in a minute uh, beyond kind of that high level look at what vector theory is, but we can apply that to cards individually. We can look at where a card performs best and uh, how well it performs in that scenario. Cause even if a card performs best in a certain scenario, it doesn't mean it's actually good relative to other cards. Um, that's right. But you can also apply that to your, to decks as well. And so like the deck or archetype itself will also have a direction that it's expecting to move in and a strength in that direction. Did you and guys ever see, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's like, yeah, no, no you're worries. totally right. And did, did you guys ever see the archetypist? Yes. Tool? Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is a very vector theory centric tool, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, that, that, which, which I think is not, going right now or up i don't know but i think maybe the the creators of it are working on something else or maybe doing something with it but you know that was the one where it gave you that plot graph and it allowed you to look at how even within one archetype or one color pair let's say that there could be groupings of cards that were disparate from each other so you could have like red green and there might and you would see these two sort of vague clusters and it, and you could highlight the clusters and then examine what the deck lists were actually consisting of there including total number of given cards and so like for red green you might see that there's two different clusters and you might look at one and find out that the differentiator are like a bunch of combat tricks right mm -hmm. and then that the other decks didn't have. And then you go to the other deck and like, well, what's going on here? And it would be like ramp cards and six drops or something like that. So you'd have this like red green ramp archetype that was good, but certainly was not interested in combat tricks. And then mm -hmm. you'd have this red green beatdown deck that had no interest in ramp, but 
you definitely wanted the the premium combat tricks to push through damage, you know, from that color pair. And that's the kind of thing where if all you did was know the scalar model, where, where you're just like, I know which cards are good, you would end up with an absolute mess that's right in between these where you've exactly. got ramp cards and combat tricks, which is just like the disaster. But if you're willing to to focus, you could see that the combat trick that doesn't, you know, go well as far as raw power level goes, is actually, you know, a perfectly solid performer in that one archetype. That's that that's exactly it. And and this is the purpose of the model to clear up those language communications. We're not claiming to have invented a new way of drafting mm-hmm. so much as we're claiming we've invented a new way of talking about drafting that's so much more effective. Uh, and with this in mind, the ultimate goal is to clear up those inconsistencies such that a newer, less inexperienced player or even an experienced player uh, can make sure everyone's on the same page and understanding things correctly as actually intended to be communicated. Uh, going back to Blue White in, uh, in Wilds of Eldraine, we saw some of the high-level pros even were drafting these, these blue-white sort of control-ish bargain decks. Um, and then that's very different than like the tapping theme. But occasionally a, a good tap deck with like three charade of hidden depths and like a Hilda would come together. And then you'd be like, oh, I just smoked someone with blue-white. Mm-hmm. And then most people would go, what are you talking about? Like, I, I thought all those like control cards were, were what you're supposed to do. And then, of course, some blue-white decks just didn't work at all. Right. So let's talk about how this can be applied first at drafting. Uh, So cards whose vectors point as strongly as possible in the same direction make for a good draft. So uh, as I draft with vector theory in mind, I try to say after each pick, what card can I take from this pack that most closely aligns with the vectors of the cards I've picked already? And uh, this doesn't mean you can throw out all of the other, you know, good drafting strategies. You are still supposed to take like good bombs early. But I guess we can recontextualize what a good bomb is. A card like uh, I think a certain person's preview card comes to mind. Mm -hmm, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that card was absolutely absurd. We couldn't believe it when we got that email. We're like, is this for somebody else? (laughs) Like, We usually get uncommons or whatever. We got this freaking insane, you know, bomb. I think you guys have earned it. Uh, yeah, we, we enjoyed it. I'll say that. I think a way you I'm can look sporting at a, card a 70% like this. win rate right now. <laughs> Is really? Yeah. Yeah, that card's nuts. So a way that you could look at a card like this is that it has a very strong strength. Uh, as far as vectors go, you can think of it like an arrow. So the length of this arrow would be very long, and the direction in which it points is flexible. Uh, when you ask yourself the question, when is Bonehorde Dracosaur at its best? Uh, I mean, when would you say it's at its best? On the battlefield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just in a deck on the field. When it, when it, it resolves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I guess if you, you know, if, if you're using the analogy of an arrow, you know, if it has a nuclear warhead on the tip of it, it doesn't really matter how good you are at firing it. Right. It's, it's gonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then again, you could also imagine some pack one pick ones that are a little more niche. Um, Pugnacious Hammer Skull, also from this set, maybe a bit of a toned down. That's the uh, Tuna Green 6-6. Six, six. And if it attacks, but you don't control another dinosaur, you get a stun counter on it. A strong card, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this clearly has a direction to it that's, you know, not as free as something like Bonehorde Dracosaur. 
So uh, even some A-plus level bombs would have a direction. Imidane's Recruiter, Gruff Triplets. These were still cards that, while were game-winning, you could certainly maximize, and you could probably also engineer scenarios where they weren't that good. Uh, Scenarios where they may not be at their maximum. Still, their floor is very high. But you can still build towards them more uh, more effectively than if you, you weren't thinking about this at all. For sure, yeah. So this can help with everything from building out a curve to knowing when to pick an off-color card to reading signals. So I've got a pack to pick one here. Pack one, it went pretty well. I first picked a Brass's Tunnel Grinder. Uh, this is that artifact. It lets you... Uh, discard your hand draw a number of stuff you can flip it and then it does a bunch of discover stuff on the back uh, you know kind of artifacty descend yeah. vector bomb so when i look at this card i say okay this is my pack one pick one when is this thing optimized well probably when you're descending uh once a turn ish and then when you are casting spells at the back maybe also taking enough time in the game to get to the point where you can flip to the back side and actually you know get value off of it uh, took a bunch of other good cards after that. I picked up an Abrade, a Dreadmaul's Ire. Uh, and then I started getting some some more artifacty cards. Uh, two Cogwork Wrestlers, this funny little guy. Uh, I got a Dino, Dino Tomaton. I can never mm-hmm. say that thing properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other stuff that you might consider off-vector. A Merfolk Cave Diver, a Confounding Riddle. Off-vector even within blue-red. Uh, so, you know, these things don't care about artifacts or, or what the brass's tunnel grinder seems to be doing and then a couple off color cards uh however maybe not necessarily off vector so oltec archaeologists the five mana four four lets you uh, regrowth an artifact to your hand you could say that that actually is on vector with brass's tunnel grinder because they both involve you know permanents going to the graveyard so you get to kind of play with colors in a funny way instead of talking about what a certain color pair is doing in a set you get to instead talk about what a certain vector is trying to do within a set. So the way we've approached LCI so far is saying, well, there's all this dinosaur stuff. There's all this uh, uh, other uh, type oriented stuff. But then there's these decks that care about either descending once a turn, descending maybe a reasonable amount like for sacrifice effects, and then descending absolutely as much as possible, just dumping it all into the, into the graveyard. Right. For the fathomless ones and the eights. Yeah, exactly. So now I come to my pack two, and I see here a Poetic Ingenuity. That's the two in a red enchantment. Whenever one or more dinosaurs you control attack, create that many treasure tokens. And whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a 3-1 red dinosaur creature token, it triggers only once each turn. So when you see this card, what's going through your head in a draft, Marshall? Well, I just... In in the in my experience so far, I have basically ignored the first line of text and <laughs> fully embraced the second line of text, shall we say. Like that's where yeah. you know, if if this one has if you want to vector this one, it has two of them. One of them cares about dinosaurs, and I would give it a three out of ten on how much it cares or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is cares about artifacts, and it's like a ten out of ten on that. Like it abs like if you can follow this up with two artifacts or something, it's over. Exactly. You have now perfectly identified what vector this card is. Now, let me show another red uncommon, because let's be honest, there are some scenarios in some sets where you open a, you've drafted a blue red deck in part in pack one, you open a red rare and a red uncommon. And there are certain times when it's correct to take the uncommon over the rare. People sure. know this, drafters know this. I've got a calamitous cave in here, right? 
Three in a red, <laughs> sorcery, uh, deals X to each creature and Planeswalker where X is the number of caves on battlefield and graveyard. Would you ever think of taking this for your blue-red deck you've got here? No, I mean, because this one, again, if we want to vector it, is cares about caves at, again, a 10 out of 10. I mean, I'm not giving out these 10s lightly, but like, <laughs> th- this is like you have to be all in in caves or it's nothing. And here's where it becomes a bit easier. You would always take the ingenuity over the cave in here. Yeah. Uh, but now we have a good model for why, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there is also a geological appraiser here. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the two red, red, three, two uh, with discover three, cascade three, I guess you could say, when it enters the battlefield at uncommon. So um, it's, a, also, it's a vectorless wonder. Yes, exactly. It's a good value card. It's a chief of the scalers. It's just sitting there being like, I am good. <laughs> I, we've got, a, we've got a, a, a regular vector theorist here with us, Zach. Yeah, cast me. <laughs> yeah. So this thing... You could say, okay, this this card is good, but I mean, I have a Dinotomaton in here, which happens. Hey, you to did be it. You said it. That's uh, it. Yeah. It's Dine and then Automaton. <laughs> like that's the right, like Automaton, right? Yeah, Dine Automaton. You did it. I've got one of these bad boys hanging out. Uh huh. Does a poetic ingenuity just the curve in is, is just perfect for it, right? Yes. So I, I also have a couple cogwork wrestlers, which can make the dinosaur tokens at instant speed because they're artifacts, even on my opponent's turn. Uh, because they have flash, which mm-hmm. works well with that second clause. So we we have here, as you said, a vectorless card with admirable strength, a good amount of vector length. Very solid card. But then we also have this this card that you might even call a build around, right? And this sort of recontextualizes what a build around is for us. We see it almost as a card with a maybe more unique vector, one that asks you to do something cool, fun, unique. And we tend to like drafting cards like this. So uh, as I continue to go through my picks, I picked up some other good stuff, things like in a braid. I got some other random stuff going around. But then this affected how I drafted for the rest of the draft. I mean, I I started saying, okay, I'm going to maximize my artifacts. And if possible, in blue red, I'm going to maximize my dinosaurs. So uh, when another Dinotomaton came around, you know, I snagged that thing. Even though there were some other cards in the pack that I man, aren't you just going to wheel the one from pack two, pick one? Like, <laughs> oh, you know I wheeled that one. <laughs> there, there it is. Boom. Uh, yeah, ship it. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, so this is kind of how we see it applying to the drafting process. Okay, so I have a couple of questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of them is you just said the the length of the vector, and that was your shorthand for just how rawly powerful is this. Right. Exactly. So you want to use that as the like, is that the telling you how broad strokes powerful this card is? So it's sort of because I call it the scalar king, right? Mm. But but it sounds like you want to use this kind of arrow visual. Is that like what my brain is supposed to see that I've got a, you know, a nice big bow and arrow with, you know, that. Three, two, you know, with discovered three is like, that's a big bullet, Mm -hmm. right? It's very, very solid card, but it is mostly directionless. Yes. Well, yeah. And you could also argue, you could look at it too, that every card has like infinite directions. They're just really weak Mm -hmm. in almost all of them. And then they're really strong in one. So So what's the visual I have there? Yeah. Cause I visualize like a, like a star, you know, like a. Not a glowing globe, but like a spiky star, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, but is this, 
Can I make it 2D? We have tried averaging out certain aspects of this and uh, talked to Sirkovitz and some 17 mm-hmm. Lance people about how we mm-hmm. could actually quantify this. This is a shortcoming uh, of the model. Um, every model yeah. has shortcomings. Every analogy has its assumptions uh, yeah. that you need to, to jump That's right. before you I, work I, with I'm the model. I'm just wondering because I look, because I, I don't, I know that like we're, we're in the applications right now for drafting. There's also gameplay deck building and applications as well. And so, you know, this might be answered or shown during the course of that. But for the draft one, the bar that I always hold Luis and I to on the podcast and something that we try to stick really hard to, even though honestly, it can be difficult to do because it's really fun to do the other part or it's indulgent in some way or something like that is we, we try to have the idea of I'm a relatively new drafter. I've been mm-hmm. drafting for six months. I know how it works, right? I'm not, I'm not like, you don't need to teach me power and toughness or something, right? But I'm not good at this. I go to my local game store. I fire up arena. I routinely go to get, you know, two or three wins on arena. I've never won my F and M draft. There's always some guy there that just trashes me and I, and he's just never, I'm never going to beat him. And it's, you know, that, and I, but I want to get better. So I found your podcast. I found my podcast, whatever we want the information that we talk about on the show to be actionable, applicable, mm-hmm. meaning not, not purely theoretical. Like we can talk about the theory stuff a lot and it, and, and you might, it might shake something loose in somebody's brain about approaching a problem differently or being more aware of their own uh, shortcomings or whatever. But at the end of the day, I want our listeners to be able to sit down at the draft table or at the game or at their computer and say, I learned something on LR today and I'm going to put it into practice today. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the trickiest part because you're definitely onto something here, right? To encapsulate the idea of not just power level in a vacuum, but also power level and context in one theory, in one concept is, is very, that's good. That, that's needed, that's useful, and it makes sense, and that's a good thing. The question becomes, though, I have to know a lot to be able to translate this into like actions, right? So the question for me becomes, how do you make this actionable by, you know, an average magic player? And that's the tricky part. That's the part where I'm like, that's why I'm, I'm trying to get this visual in my head mm-hmm. of, is it an arrow? Is it a star? If it's a 3d star, I'm going to have a really hard time p- figuring out every single possible direction that it could go. Yeah. You know, I could see it being on a 2d, right? Just like a, a map where uh, there's a circle around the edge, right? And the circle has the reasonable out uh, vectors that exist within the set, meaning artifacts is one of them, dinosaurs is one of them, descend is one of them, right? And then we come up with four or five others, you know, merfolk is one of them, whatever. Sure. And then you take the card and it might have effectively nothing towards merfolk. It's not a merfolk. It doesn't care about merfolk. So there's a little tiny line there towards that end of the, that part of the circle. And then we go to the next one, like a clock or something. Right. And this one is artifacts. Okay. There's a, the line that literally touches the edge because it is a 
an artifact that cares about other artifacts and yeah. enables artifacts and whatever. Right. So that's the, that's the 10 out of 10. I care about, you know, artifacts. So the rare that you open, for example, right. Would have nothing for merfolk, nothing for descend, nothing for blank, 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 but it would have maybe three or four out of 10 towards dinosaurs and 10 out of 10 towards, or towards artifacts. That to me is something that I can envision myself like in my spare time or in my mind when I'm, thinking about cards or when I'm listening to a set review or when I'm opening a card and reading it for the first time or, or getting it passed to me and kind of going, okay, it, let's just, you know, this is to me, you know, we do, we do quadrant theory on LR, right? Mm. And that requires a few steps. You, you can't just, you have to ask yourself a few questions and come up with the best answers that you can, even mm -hmm. if it's in the moment, right? So you might, get a card in a draft at FNM and go, ah, I haven't really played with this one yet. It's a rare, or, you know, it's just a card I haven't seen yet. It's early in the format and you might go, all right, let's just, just to give myself an idea, right? Is this card good when I'm ahead? Yeah, it is. Okay. That most cards are, you know, is this card going on behind? Uh, uh, no, it's, it's like a combat trick. It's not, it's not going to do that. You know, does this card break mm -hmm. parity? Mm, not super great. Right. And you go through each of those and you kind of go, okay, I think I have an idea. Right. Where like if you get your um, I forgot what it's called, but the three two discover guy, right? Then you go, okay, is this card good when I'm ahead? It's like, yeah, it's really good. Right. And is, is it good when I'm behind? It's like, actually, yeah, like this could make a little board state for me here and help me stabilize. Is this break parity? Eh, ish, you know, and is this good when I'm developing my my board? And the answer is absolutely, right? Like mm -hmm, a four drop mm -hmm. that cast a three, two or one drop is great. Right. And so you're like, wow, this card's super good, you know, but again, that you had to work for that a little bit. So I'm wondering for, for vector, if I can sit down and I can say, all right, I opened up poetic ingenuity. I haven't played with this yet. I missed a set review. I, I just, I'm not really sure where to go with this. Is there a, a set of steps that I could take to at least using my knowledge my intuition, because again, this, I know this is about, you know, teaching people to trust their intuition mm -hmm. to put this on some type of a, a vector that I can actually come away going, okay, I have, a, I have, I have contextualized this card more than I yeah. had when I just read it. You know, actually, I think this is maybe a benefit that this model has over quadrant theory. It's only one question and it's mm -hmm. just, when is this card at its best? When is this card at its best? But it's more than that, right? Because if I answered that question for this, I would just ignore the dinosaur text. I think you can keep the dinosaur text in mind because there are dinosaurs in, in blue and red, right? Well, I'm saying if, you, if, if I came up to you and said, Poetic Ingenuity, when is it at its best? You would say, in an artifact deck. I would say, and then if I said, "Do you have anything else you'd like to add?" You would say, "Yeah, <laughs> it's actually pretty good in dinosaur decks too." But that's not what you asked, right? I, I, yeah. you know, so I think you, you, the question has to be broader than that, maybe only a little bit, which is, in which scenarios does this card perform well? Something mm -hmm. like that, right? Because it yeah. may be multiple, which is kind of the whole point of the thing, is to not just say this card's good, this card's bad, but to say when and how would this card be good? When and how would this card be bad? Right. Mm, yeah. So I wonder if you, you know, if you do need to have, cause again, I mean, I, I totally, you're teach like you totally know that once you take this one half a step too far, people just tune out, right. They're just like, I don't know. I don't know how to figure that out in the moment. Yeah. You know, it needs yeah. to be 
something that I can go through like an order of operations or something like that to start training my brain to say, I'm looking for spots where this would perform better than it just reads on the front or where I can mm -hmm. maximize on it. So I think when I look at this card, the vectors that are going through my head, like you said, artifacts, dinosaurs. So to me, what's churning in my mind is for this card to be at its absolute best, like best possible, it wants to be in a deck full of artifacts, tons and tons of artifact spells, and then as many dinosaurs as you can possibly get within that deck as well. Okay. And that is when, when this card is at its maximum. Sometimes there isn't such a home. And we actually saw this in Wilds of Eldraine with a lot of the Enchanting Tail cards, mm -hmm. where many of those cards had zero home at all. There was nothing you could do with them. And that's why when a newer player maybe saw one of those at FNM, took like a parallel lives, pack one, pick one, and then didn't get any token makers, that is what we're trying to avoid here. Because then someone with very little background knowledge, uh, maybe they just glanced over the set once, they might go... I don't think I saw a lot of cards that made tokens. Maybe yeah. Parallel Lives is a bit of a trap. And then just that model application there, just helping a newer player prevent that type of disconnect one time would make Vector Theory a rousing success. I see. So you're willing to give up a little bit of granularity on it for, to make it a little more grokkable. Yes. Uh, okay. I, I would say... That's reasonable. If I opened in Woe Parallel Lives, I would say, okay, this wants as many token makers as possible. Maybe that doesn't exist, right? It, it, it has to come from just sort of a knowledge of what the card is trying to do, which uh, is, uh, again, a quote that I've heard you say a bunch of times. I've heard LSV yeah. say it. A bunch of pros say this all the time, what a certain card or deck is quote unquote trying to do. And this just gives that a bit more context. Yeah, but that makes point, sense. I think we've sort of uh, dipped into deck building a little bit here. So, uh, so once you're past the draft stage, uh, and then you're actually into the deck building stage, you want to be building your deck with the cards from your pool, and this could apply to sealed as well, uh, with as many cards that align with a single unified vector as possible. You want to be knowing what your deck's plan is, which is, again, another sort of common you know, adage that gets tossed around the limited community. Uh, modern magic sets, they're usually designed such that there's plenty of pieces that work well within multiple vectors, sort of like uh, these cornerstones of, of limited that play well in multiple types of decks or archetypes. Uh, we, we actually started recently doing something called like Hello Deck, where whenever you've got a deck that you're about to build, you go, Hello Deck, what do you do? What's your thing? <laughs> right? Okay, uh, actually, that's cool. I, I stole this one from physics, too. Uh, whenever I have my students look at a graph, I have them say, hello, graph. What are on your axes? What are the units? Uh, what is the independent? What is the dependent variable? What's the graph's title? Uh, where do the axes begin? What are their maximums? Such, stuff like that. Right, and if so you, you familiarize through, yourself in total with it to just kind of give yourself a little bit of context rather than just being like, what does this dot mean? Yeah, that's good. Exactly. Uh, so this ended up being the final... Uh, deck list, and then I have all the cards that wound up in my sideboard here. So uh, check out my Dino Automatons. I got, <laughs> I got four of these oh, bad four boards. of them. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. I believe this deck fully maximized the vector of Poetic Ingenuity. Uh, also ended up with three Goblin Tomb Raiders, two Cogwork Wrestlers that I had before. I'll be honest, Red was pretty open. I got three of Braids. Um, uh -huh. Nice. But this is, and I actually ended up getting a Geological Appraiser. 
but then I see another card here that actually works really well with the uh, uh, the ingenuity. I've got a Sahili's Lattice, an artifact. It also flips into a dinosaur. So this card, I would say, very well aligns with the vector of um, poetic ingenuity. With both of them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so sometimes you get these these good like lock cards. And now, you got a Zoetic Glyph, too. I did. Have you seen the numbers on this card? It's yeah. like one of the top 10 in the set right now. Yeah, my friend Wild Jay, he, he drafted four of those. Jeez. And he, he just sent me a picture of that with the four next to it, you know, from Marina. <laughs> and then he sent me a gif of Michael Jordan shrugging like, yeah, what are you going to do? You know. <laughs> and then he sent me a replay on 17 lands of him casting all four of them in one game. So, yeah. Jeez. Wow. I, I, I imagine he won, right? He did, yeah. And his yeah. opponent has some really good stuff, too. I was like, wow. man, if I was your opponent, I'd be on full-blown. I'd be like, this is not real. <laughs> it, uh, it sounds like he went down a pretty particular vector. I'm sure he included a lot of cheap artifacts, maybe evasive ones with flying, uh, things like that. To maximize You're absolutely it. correct. Again, this is something that everyone does, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah. maybe the people that don't, when they have this in mind, then they can go... Uh, maybe I should do this instead of that. So here's some examples. Uh, I've got a bunch of blue and red cards in the sideboard here that didn't make it in. So something like, uh, let's see, Song of Stupefaction, right? This is an easy one. Uh, a blue removal spell. Yeah, okay, blue removal spell. Blue decks don't get that much removal. This is sort of like a removal spell. It shuts down a creature. So then, uh, Marshall, why, why would you not include this in this deck? Right. And, you know, this is interesting because I keep having this visual in my head of this, this circle thing yes. with a card in the middle. And then, and, you know, this one points very heavily to descend to self mill to getting cards into your graveyard. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't point at all to the things that, you know, when we asked your deck, hello deck, what are you all about? Descend was not in that sentence. Exactly. If I ask hello deck here, what is this about? Well, it's about landing some cheap creatures maybe a one drop like goblin tomb raider uh landing some you know good two drops maybe something to help um, get you on board like an oaken siren maybe removing their early bomb or early play because there are some good two and three drops in this format just being able to disrupt consistently is, is solid yeah uh maybe landing one of your sort of mid-game uh kind of synergy pieces like brass's tunnel grinder ingenuity or the glyph and then rounding out with something like Dino Tomaton to give maybe the Tomb Raider or one of your two or three drops menace and then close out with the dinos. Uh, this is a very low curve deck, by the way. This ended up being a 16 lander curving out at four. And just that. drawing a bunch of dinos and just swinging through with menace is. Uh, yeah, it looks nice. Oh, yeah, th this was a fun one. Now, there are some cards that you'll cut from your uh, deck based on the length of their vector rather than lack of direction. So something like. Uh, Maybe like unlucky drop the four mana instant that just puts something on the bottom. Yeah. Or waylaying pirates, a solid spell. Everyone loves a frost links, right? And th this is along the same vector. Like this cares about having artifacts, but this deck more so cared about attacking and it cared about dinosaurs. So waylaying pirates in the four drop slot. Uh, that's the uh, again four mana three three ETB. Uh, you put something a stun counter uh, if you control an artifact. And maybe if you were building a deck without Vector 3, you might say, yeah, I want one of those over one of these Dino Automatons. I don't want four of these. But along this vector, this deck wants to maximize the number of dinosaurs it has because of that poetic ingenuity. Sure. So this was an easy decision to uh, not play it and play the Dino Automatons instead. And then you've also just got some cards in the board that I would just consider, you know, um, directionless as far as Vector goes, but also just like a little short. 
like on length, you know, your unlucky drop, right. Is like a playable magic card. It's, it's mm-hmm. actually fine. It's, it's actually like borderline good, but it's not so good that you wanted to replace something that in the context of your deck had a, a it was actually longer and better pointed because it's that one's basically directionless. Exactly. And now this is where you get into some really interesting applications of vector theory, where you start saying, well, maybe I have this off color card. I don't know. Imagine a card that was both a dinosaur and made like three artifacts on ATV. Be like, well, that aligns really well with the vector of this deck. How can I get this in? Is it possible? Does it affect my mana base too much? Mm -hmm. Does this vector allow enough time where I could potentially draw into my splash color or use an evolving wilds effect and, uh, and get that thing on board. I had an, uh, an example, a deck that I drafted that started as like a, it's like a, a blue black artifact ETB stuff deck. So, uh, had a lot of those like two drop ones, like the, uh, for the, the draft where ETBs mm-hmm. lose a life and, uh, draw a card, a bunch of stuff like that ways to get them back and recur them and sack them. And then in pack three, I opened Abuelo, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the one that flickers artifacts. And I said, I'm slamming this. And uh, I, I, I seem to remember someone telling me that I shouldn't. Uh... There, were, there were quite a few people in chat, myself included, that said, <laughs> don't do that. It's a terrible <laughs> splash. Don't do it. And do you remember how it ended up working out? It was the best card in the deck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I had uh, a but bunch you could of copies. Cast it. I mean, because the chat, sure. I'm sure, wasn't disagreeing if it was on color, right? It was. Yeah. So it, it well, was. Yeah, they were color. saying was it wasn't strong black. enough. Yeah. It was a splashable oh. card, right? So he was splashing white for it. And in a blue That's black what deck. I'm saying. Yeah. Like, wasn't mm-hmm. that the question that the chat had? Was it, it wasn't the, the card? It's like if it was just right. straight up. Yeah. Castable, yeah. they would have said if it I'm was all powerful in. enough to be worth mm-hmm. yeah. splashing for. It, yeah. I yeah. So, so was... if, if Ben is bragging that it ended up being the best card, it's because he was able to cast it multiple yes. times. That's true. So yes. it means that you had either got lucky or had good mana fixing or maybe a combo. And the deck right. was on, it was along what I would say a reactive vector where it had a lot of cheap removal. Uh, it had ways to stabilize. It had a lot of those artifacts like, uh, what's the sword where it ETBs to edict your opponent. Something oh like yeah, that, the black um, one. Yeah. Yeah. I started flickering that in the mid to late game using oh, Abuelo. That's nice. That's yeah. really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I had the one that drew cards when it flickers and all, all this other stuff. Um, it, it ended up being a perfectly vector synergistic card. Yeah, it was a little hard to cast and maybe one or two times it got stuck in my hands. I, I you know, do as I say, not as I do. But uh, <laughs> it, it ended up being perfectly along the vector and it, it helped me learn something as well. If I can take that card early, I know now exactly what home it's best in. We saw okay. something like that too in uh, like a while ago. I think the the example for me when Ben and I were kind of talking through this that always sticks in mind is blue green wizards from Zendikar Rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like a, an archetype that Watsi didn't really like publicize. People didn't really know it was a thing. And yeah, then the all of a sudden it's like, wow, this just it. worked really well. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, uh, even something like Domain in uh, in DMU, right? Where I think maybe the traditional way of deck building. What was the name of that six mana card? Uh, the six mana black green signpost uncommon four four oh, domain. And it you brought dug something, something back. back up after the yard. Yeah, yeah. I forget, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so it's that funny how this happens. Backbreaker. There was like two. Bortuck there was like bone a rattle. I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. That card was brutal. 
And under a lot of traditional evaluation techniques, you might say, oh, well, this is the black green signpost uncommon. A black green deck, but also domain. Is it going to play mostly black green cards? Is it going to be taking lands highly? I, I think that's actually how even Zach and I used to approach our set reviews. We would look at like the black green deck and say, all right, what is the black green deck trying to do? And then you get that as your as your signpost and you go, well, this isn't even a black green deck. We need to we need to be a little more uh, open minded about this. And vector theory accounts for that. It says, OK, Bortog Bone Rattle wants you to have all five land types. And actually, the blue green deck, the blue green signpost also wants you to have all all land types. Maybe black green decks and blue green decks in this format don't even exist. Maybe it's mm. just this five color soup, and that ended up being exactly what it was. And yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, but we've been able to start applying that ahead of set releases, and it puts us a little ahead of the game, right? Where we can catch That's that cool. stuff early, especially when it's not clear, right? Yeah, like like blue green. Often you can read it and go, I don't know what this is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's like I it, this is direct. You know, sometimes it's, it's merfolk or whatever, but sometimes it's like this is a vaguely rampy card draw, big creature thing. And it's like, I don't you yeah. know, what am I supposed to because that's the I don't I don't know if it would fit. But right now we have a vector that is of a certain length, which is dictating its power. It's pointed in a certain direction, which is dictating, you know, what it wants to be doing or where it's going to perform the best. But then there's also like this idea of the vector describing the archetype itself rather than an individual card. Right. And, you know, some of them are a lot more defined and rigid, you know, artifact decks and stuff tend to be, you know, really reward critical mass versus domain decks, which are like, well, you can kind of cast whatever you want and you want a bunch of cards that say the domain on them and the rest just being the most powerful stuff you could find. That's mm-hmm. a lot more vague, you know, than then right well the vector for this is how many artifacts can you cram into this deck you know well and that's what exactly what we saw in in wilds veldrin with blue white right like we were told quote unquote that blue white was a tap deck draft all the things that say they want to tap things draft all your castles that want to watch things get tapped so you can get some value out of it and it turns out that's not really what that color pair was doing in its best form it was really just That's this right. like amalgamation of controlling spells. <laughs> That's right. A lot yes. harder to put a word, like a title to, I suppose. Exactly. So let's uh let's jump into some gameplay. I I feel like the best way to summarize this would be let your deck do what its vector wants to do and try to play into that as best as you can. Let your cards actually do the thing you crafted it for, right? Mm-hmm. So this can help as uh, it can help you make quick decisions uh, based on things like maybe when to trade off or uh, when to maybe know when to save a certain spell or uh, when to uh, make a, a risky attack uh, based on, you know, kind of knowledge of what your deck is is trying to do. So I don't, I don't know. You might have seen something like this before. Have you ever seen like a red, weck, a red white aggressive deck trade off its two drop creature? Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I see this. I go, wait a minute, is that what their red white deck is trying to do? Because they'll trade off their two drop when I attack with my, I'm playing like blue green or something and I'll attack with my thing and they trade off their two drop. 
And then they spend the next several turns like playing out their stuff, but because they lost the two drop, now you're so far ahead on board. And then you, oh, you totally. cast your card draw spell. You've played through this game a million times, right? A million times. They have they have combat tricks in their hand with no targets. They have equipment laying on the battlefield, but they traded yep, off their yep, thing. Yep. They have a mass pump spell, something like that, and they don't have enough bodies to make that worth it. Yeah, that's I've seen that a lot. And I'll be honest, I've been on the other end of that too, right? Where I have made the silly play. I traded something off too early. Or maybe you can flip this, right? You're playing like a blue-green deck and you don't trade off your early creature. And then all of a sudden you're at 10 life and you're like, uh-oh, like one or two good things from them and I'm actually I'm actually out. Yep. So uh, I, I'd want to continue uh, following here with our theme. That's... Now, uh, I wish I could zoom in a little more, but this is against a black-green deck. Now, I'm at 20, they're at 17, and I actually had my Poetic Ingenuity live this game. I had already attacked with a couple dinosaurs, so I had some treasures laying around. I had out uh, two Goblin Tomb Raiders, a flipped into a Mastercraft Raptor. I think it was a 4-4 it was four four at the time, and a Volatile Wander Glyph. I had a, a Tomb Raider in hand. My opponent only had out this Armored Kin Caller. So uh, let's see if I can next action here. Yeah, so I'll start skipping through. So I use the treasure, cast my Goblin Tomb Raider, and I decided to full swing here. Now, I'm probably going to lose something on this attack, right? Yeah, I mean, two, two. Yeah, I, I lose probably my Volatile Wanderglyph. I think that's what they ended up blocking. Uh, I did that. Yep, they blocked my Volatile Wanderglyph. So you could probably build a, a scenario where someone in that same position might go oh well if i attack right now i'm gonna lose one of my creatures i don't want to do that i better not attack and mm -hmm. to be honest when i was a newer and less experienced magic player I, I would do this all the time i'd be like well i can't lose a creature like i, I absolutely can't lose a creature i can't make that make that trade okay. i'd get in for some damage but i don't want to lose that creature so now at this point uh i was thinking now as i know now this vector needs to attack this vector needs to close out the game. It plays a bunch of cheap red cards, and my opponent has a bunch of life, and I need to get that down as fast as possible. I'm out of cards. They have three in hand, and I don't really have any engines going. I have a volatile wander glyph, but you know, that's not doing too much. So I decided to make this play where I full swung. Uh, put them down to seven. Uh, I didn't think they were going to chump the 4-4. Four -four. They ended up uh, just killing the 4-4. Four -four. I uh, top decked the old, what's that thing? And it is the appraiser. Mm -hmm. Got a sunshot militia off of it. And then with a sunshot militia in play, the game is basically over. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had all these Tomb Raiders still. And even if they had tapped out to play something like a, what, there's that six mana seven, seven scry two on ETB. Uh -huh. Even had they tapped out here, I think I still probably would have just full swung again. Because knowing that my deck's vector was, yeah, I have like goblin guides in my deck. And I have these creatures that give menace in my deck and i have these i have three abrades so i can easily take out uh the kin caller in a future term i was thinking of the deck's vector in the back of my mind and that informed a gameplay decision what's the deck's vector get my opponent dead as fast as possible by casting artifacts and dinosaurs in the top end okay i'm, I'm almost buying that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, because when I'm we were talking that, before, or? the vector was artifact, you know, to maximize artifacts and and to a lesser extent dinosaurs. But now you're throwing on this, you know, aggressive, you know, as quickly as possible thing 
you know, which is like, I don't know. I mean, I could probably pull up board states from your literal draft where that was no longer where that wouldn't apply, Mm -hmm. you know, where Um, you're like, well, I can sit here on this enchantment. And as long as I keep drawing artifacts, I'm just going to build out this huge board and kill my opponent. I don't need to like jam in and start throwing away creatures just to get him dead as soon as humanly possible, that type of thing. Yeah, that's true. It's always with things in magic contextual, right? Where um, you could definitely craft a hand where you might say, oh, well, actually, I need to pull back a little bit. They played a 4-4 lifelinker and attacking here doesn't sound smart. You can always find those corner cases. But in general, I know in the back of my head that this is a blue-red deck. I have a bunch Mm -hmm. of red aggressive creatures. I have one mana, two, two hasters. And I think this is where it comes back to saying hello to your deck. And something that you should ask in that case is, what does this deck, what does a win look like from this deck? And mm-hmm. what does a loss look like from this deck? I think a win is pretty easy to find. It's when you top deck two Dino Automatons. I'm getting uh-huh. better at that one. You're killing and, it. Uh, and you give your, your one Goblin Tomb Raider menace, and then you abrade their creature, and you just swing in, and uh, you built out your board much faster than they could. And yeah, maybe you got buffed along the way with the Poetic Ingenuity tokens or uh, you used like a Dreadmaw's Ire, like a combat trick or a pump spell or something like that. Uh, you flew over with one of your cheap flyers like Oaken Siren. Uh, and, and yeah, you could also craft a scenario where what does it look like when this deck um, loses, right? It's probably when they, I don't know, answer all of your initial threats, uh, build out something faster than uh, or something that can effectively deal with a bunch of menace creatures. And that can happen. Uh, but it wasn't that likely, uh, just because mm-hmm. the vector of this deck was so tight that and everything's so, you know, closely aligned as far as the individual cards that it had such internal consistency. Uh, I, this was an easy, an easy seven one with this oh, list. Very nice. And just like the way it played out, uh, it was just like I drew it up. Right. And, and that's where vector theory lives. I, I did a, this, like this whole sequence uh, I, I think is a perfect illustration of this because this is both a, a running thread from the draft to the deck build to the gameplay where, you know, with this deck, I would never want to veer off from that vector because then I'm losing equity, right? I'm losing some sort of equity from either the draft. I pick a card that I'm, that's like a silly splash. that's off vector. And then I regret it later. You can prevent that. Uh, you make a weird play cause you're afraid they have a trick. You can prevent that. Uh, you include a card in your deck that's ill-advised. Vector theory prevents that too. It's sort of like a catch-all. Yeah, I you know, looking back at the from beginning to end, the things that come to my mind when it comes to it is that if I had to knock it, I would say that it's a little bit too much of a catch-all in that it's trying to do like it it isn't quite bite-sized enough for me to be able to just say, okay, I can figure out something that I need to know by using this rather than just guessing or, or relying on what my first instinct was for the, for a thing, because like, does vector theory have to do with cards? Does it have to do with archetypes? Does it have to do with strategies? The answer is yeah. Right. So it's kind of like, well, where, how do I, you know, how do I actually apply this where I'm confused or I need to get from point A to B on a pick or a play, or a deck building decision, or a card evaluation, and how do I use this to help me understand that? And it's like, well, there's a lot of things that would go into that in each of those scenarios. And any one thing that's trying to do all of those at once 
is going to struggle. I and mean, it's going to be really hard for you to convince me that you can give me some simple formula that can, you know, kind of tie the knot on how good is this card? When should I pick this card? Should I put this card in my deck? When and how do I play this card during gameplay? Right. That, mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot to bite off, I think for, for one thing. So there's that. And then I think the other knock that I would have on it is just, it's still a little confusing about how I actually apply it. Right. Like if, like this makes me this concept, and this is by the way, to dovetail into what I like about it, which is that it makes me aware of something I may not have been aware of. And it starts to give me a bit of a visual into this idea that cards are not simply a scale of one to 10. Mm -hmm. It, it, again, it, it, puts it from that one dimensional line into at least two dimensions on, you know, how good is this card, but also where does it point like on a compass, right? And, yeah. and some cards can point to multiple points on a compass as well. And, you know, some cards can point to three or four, right? Like this, this came to mind and I wanted to mention it, even though it's a little out of content, but some of the cards that we like a lot um, when we do the set reviews are the ones that I call pivot cards, right? They're the ones that mm-hmm. can go into multiple archetypes and have things that those archetypes each care about. And those tend to do really well. Those tend to be some of the better commons are the ones that are like, well, this wants it, that wants it, that wants it. And yes, that'll play it too. And they're not, it's not just because it's raw power. It's because an artifact ETB and it's a merfolk and it lets you put a card into your graveyard and it, yeah. you know, whatever. And you know, this is, this is another in my mind where that is maybe not pointing super hard to any one thing on the compass of our vector or whatever, but it, if it has a three or four out of 10 pointing to three or four different things, it's probably going to be good enough to take and keep you open and, and, you know, get the, those type of things going. So I really like that this opens up your eyes to this idea that you do not simply, you know, give a card a, a number or grade and just check the box. Right. And this gives you in my mind, at least a few steps towards trying to contextualize it more about what you should be thinking about when you do anything with these cards, including deck building, drafting and all that stuff. But the thing that I struggle with, and I think the thing that needs to be polished up on it for it to be kind of what you want it to be, where it's covering everything is I need some order of operations for where if I'm confused at any of the, if you're going to try to bite off, this is good for card evaluation, drafting, deck building, and gameplay, then I need some set of instructions or something that I can do where I can say, okay, I'm stuck here. How can I use vector theory or this vector idea to help me get from point A to point B? And if I, you know, so if I give you like a really simple test of the card, the set just came out. I've read over the list. So I have an idea of what's going on in the set. Cause that is required, of course, you know, for, for this. Um, but I can't quite tell how good this card actually is. Um, what do I do? And then the next one would be, I have this card in my draft pile, but I don't know if I should put it in my deck. What mm-hmm. do I do to decide it? And then the next one is I'm playing out the game and I've got these two cards that I can cast one or the other, which one should I cast? Can, can this help me take a step towards making a decision on that? And if so, what do I do? I'm using the quadrant theory one as the example, because it's the one I'm most familiar with, you know, which is okay, stop. And quadrant three, by the way, is is mostly card evaluation centric. It's not trying Mm -hmm. to do everything at all times, but you know, and you say stop 
and ask yourself these four questions, right? And if you want, you can take a post-it note and you can put a little cross in the middle and you can, you know, so, and to me, there's two ways to approach it. You can do it binary where you say, is this card good or bad, you know, in these scenarios, or you can make it a little more granular and give it out of five stars out of 10 or something like that. Right. And you say, is this card good when you're developing your board? It's like, well, it costs seven mana. So no, right. Is this card, is this card good at breaking up a stalemate? Well, it costs seven mana and it's really powerful effect. So yes, absolutely. And you know, and if you want to go deeper, you can say it's a nine out of 10, right? It, this thing obliterates their board and, and I'll win the game. If I cast it, if it's a stalemate, something like that, or I draw five cards off of it or whatever. Right. And you go through each of the four quadrants and you ask yourself those questions. If you want, you can write it down or you can just sort of, as you get better at it, you'll learn it. And at the end of that, I think you meaningfully can say, okay, I get it. You know, this card actually looked really good, but it's kind of only good when you're ahead and it sucks when you're behind and it's not good at breaking up a stalemate and it's expensive. So it's not good at this. It's not a great card. It's, 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 it's a card that's has a specific niche that it might be okay in, but this isn't one of those cards that like my friends are going to laugh at me if I pass it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get there from point A to point B because I had this sort of order of operations where I could fill in the blanks. And that's what I want from this. I want to say, okay, how long is this vector? One out of 10, right? Is this just an unbelievable bomb like the dragon that we got? Or is it just a random common where it's a two or three or something like that? And it doesn't have to be perfect, but you just give yourself this sort of, you know, this idea in your head of, well, in its best case scenario, would I give it a one or a 10 or a five or a 10 or something like that? And then I would say, okay, well, what is this pointed at? Where does this vector point? Right. And like mm-hmm. the rare that you brought up was a perfect example because it's like it points really hard in one direction and kind of hard in another. Yeah. And at that point, I would say, okay. Right. So if I want to maximize for the length of this thing, I need to point this at an artifact deck. Right. That, that's where it's a 10. And if I want to put it in a dinosaur deck, it's like a three or a four. And if there's a way I can overlap those, I'm getting, I'm killing it. Right. Like, seven, right. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, maybe I could even, in my mind, I might even add up those numbers, right? Mm-hmm. I might say that basically this is a build around A for artifacts and it's a build around C or C plus, you know, for dinosaurs. But if I'm an, you know, Dynamiton deck or whatever, right? I'm like, okay, <laughs> then it's like a nine plus a four, right? It's like a yeah. 13 in that deck where if it was only in artifacts, it would be a nine, which is probably the best card in your deck or one of them. And if it was only in dinos, it would be a three or a four. You know, and now I can kind of go, okay, and if I can do what, what you did, Ben, and I can get it out of both, I'm getting a 13 mm-hmm. or a 12 if you want to argue with me or a 14 if you want to argue, you know, but something that is unbelievably powerful. There's not going to be very many cards that you're going to be able to say that of, you mm-hmm. know, even a, a pure isolated bomb like our dragon is probably going to be like a 10, right? It's like, it's the best card in my deck. What do I need to do to make it the best card in my deck? Cast it, right? Yeah. So that's going to be like a 10. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's a lot of these other cards that are much more difficult to figure out, right? Mm -hmm. This thing's a merfolk. But those of us that have drafted enough go, eh, it doesn't really matter. You know, like it, mm-hmm. that, that's a one or two, like you get a couple of bonus points if you have a bunch of merfolk or a card that cares about merfolk, but that's not going to be the difference, right? Mm-hmm. This one you're putting in your deck because 
it has flying and it doesn't cost that much mana. So you're up to like maybe a four. And if it's in Merfolk, it might perform at a five or a six, something like that. That's how my brain would want to try to implement this where I can start. I don't need hard numbers. I I don't, you know, the, the numbers part is just kind of how I'm explaining it to you for how I would approach it for getting it over the finish line. As far as I got it, you know, I email you guys, Hey, draft half pod. I had this pick. Um, I found it kind of confusing. These cards were close. They, they all seemed like pretty good cards that I've heard people say good things about. Here's the you know, pack two pick one. Like you had, here's the deck I already had. What do I do? You know? Mm-hmm. And I'd want you to say, here's a, here's a good example of where you can take vector in the draft portion and actually like, yes, admittedly in retrospect, because it's not common that we'll have time while actually doing these things to like throw things on the quadrant theory or mm-hmm. to do a vector run right. on the thing. Right. But this is where good players get good is when you're not drafting. Right. And you sit down and you say, okay, how, how good do you think this card is? If, if, if there was no direction to the vector at all, and you're like, I think it's like a five. Okay. Well, how good is it? And what were, what are the vectors that it would be pointing at, you know, realistically that matter? And you might say like, um, you know, descent and, um, you know, card draw, let's say that this set has some benefit for drawing cards. Right. So you're like, I think it's like a a six on descent and, you know, like a three on card draw, something like that. And you're like, okay, now what's the next card. Right. And you say, well, this one, it doesn't really point in any directions, but it's like a seven. Right. Okay. What's the next one that you're considering if there's any more. Right. And, and you can start to at least go, okay, I'm now it becomes clear to me. Hey, I should just take the good card that's good in every deck this time because my deck doesn't have a direction yet, mm-hmm. right? I, yep. Or it doesn't line up with the directions that this card that I've heard people say is really good has, right? Because I gave it mm-hmm. a 7 out of 10 for Descent. I'm not a Descent deck. I can cast it. I'm in blue, but I'm not a Descent deck and I'm not going in that direction at all. I'm Merfolk or something else. You know, now I can knock that one out and just take the the solid double you know, type card, the seven out of 10 kind of in any deck that can cast it. That to me is that finish line on this is interesting. This is useful. How do I apply it? Mm-hmm. I think ultimately, and first of all, thank you for all this amazing feedback. Just knowing what you're thinking is, is super informative because this is what many other people listening will be thinking. Mm-hmm. And I, I think ultimately, I, I don't want to call it a rebuttal, but maybe mm-hmm. my response would be, it comes back to the question, when is this card at its best? And again, we're not trying to tell anyone to draft differently, right? We're not saying that you should throw every other heuristic out the window. We're just saying if, if you kind of drape this model on top of all the other things that you know about limited, you'll notice that there's these recurring threads that run throughout all these other good heuristics anyway. Um, uh-huh. And when you have this model in your back, in the back of your head, it can help you make those little quick adjustments or quick choices, trading off your two drop, taking a certain card over another certain card. The example that you used before, like a, a big seven drop bomb. Maybe it's a, I don't know, like a, an eight mana green, like Galta from the set, right? It's like uh-huh. a costs a million. It has a ridiculous effect, but you drafted a pretty tight, like little green, white beatdown deck. Mm-hmm. And you might go, oh, well, this is a big green bomb. But then you stop and you say, when is this at its best? Well, when you're ramping and when the game is slowed down and when it eventually gets to the point where, I mean, when is this card really at its best? 
when you still have other cards in hand, because I think that one has an ETB that lets you put creatures or permanents in from your hand. Okay. And you engineer the scenario in your head where you say, well, that is when Galta is at its very best. Is that what my deck's vector is? No? Okay, I'll take this cheap white pump spell over it then. And, and those are the types of picks that you see good drafters make, yes. but maybe they don't know how to clearly communicate that that's why. They might just say, oh, that card sucks. Yes. Well, no, Galta clearly doesn't suck. I, I, I got killed by Galta in, the, uh, in the, one of the pre-release events because my opponent had a good ramp deck that interacted with me early, and they had a, it was very well-tuned to uh to, to galta's vector they actually put like three creatures into play with it it was nuts okay uh, that's that's ludicrous i i think with vector theory in the background uh knowing that this is sort of like a language model and knowing that this is a way to improve communication and also draft gameplay and deck building skills uh we're, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here this is just how it works uh we're just saying yeah. if you can communicate as clearly as you can with vectors uh you're going to have a better overall experience. And honestly, our community has loved this. Like we, we talk in terms of vectors and discord, even at my, my local game store, we've started talking. What does the conversation look like? So someone might say, uh, do I take this off vector card here? Or do okay. I go with this very weak card that does adhere to the vector? So, so vector to, in that case is substituting for what my deck's doing, my, my archetype. Yes. Okay. Archetype is honestly the, the word that I think is the bane of vector theory's existence because archetype is reductive in that you might say, oh, I played a, I played a, again, we'll come back to blue white. I played a blue white deck. My archetype was blue white, the blue white archetype. No, but, but what if I just said I was, the archetype was flyers? That's it. Then that's the vector. Yeah. I mean, but that's how archetypes used as well. It's not just colors. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, but but I hear you. I mean, whatever. It's it's if it's a better descriptor or if it works, then that makes perfect sense. How far off vector should I go? Is a perfectly reasonable way to frame that question. Exactly. You know? Yeah, that's cool. I like the I idea like it, though man. of having I, some I kind cool. of stepping stone, Marshall. That you were talking about with in terms of like, okay, here's where I'm at right now. I'm confused. What's my next step in mm -hmm. terms of using this, especially from a language like communication model? Like, how do you ask somebody what should I do here if you can't? articulate that in some form of question right so I, right. I think ben it actually could be a cool exercise for us to sit down and try to come up with a handful of steps uh to kind of more make this more concrete i think yeah because i like the, the question ben I, I like the base question of how can i maximize this but thanks the, the thing that i worry about is that it's it's such a simple question that it might lead people to overcompensate away hmm you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it is a really important question. Like the, the best decks you'll ever build will like the one that you showed, they maximize on a specific axis and they go hard. Right. Yeah. But how many times have you tried to do that, but then you just didn't get the pieces and you needed to make a functional mid-range deck that had mana that was reasonable and a, and a curve of something. And you know, where it just, it wasn't a synergy based deck. It wasn't super mm. hard. It was, you know, a pile of cards. Right. And I don't mean that in like the bad way. I just mean like, you know, a lot of drafts don't end up being, you know, super synergistic, right. In, mm -hmm. in their final form, they have kind of pockets of synergy. And then like, you're kind of going for the, the best uh, combination of consistency and power level that you can put together yeah. of the cards that are, that you've drafted otherwise. 
you know, so I would, you, you do incur risk during the draft portion when you go for the absolute best possible deck you can. That's true. If you miss, you have a bunch of pieces that don't work well together or you don't hit critical mass, you know, so that's, that's the only little caveat. I still think the question's totally valid and totally worth asking. And I do think it's also worth going for the best version of your deck within reason. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that that's the wrong direction to go, but I do I kind of envision like dot, 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 and another question to follow it up. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't yeah. know what it is. You know, I, I'm Maybe, just like uh... brainstorming with you guys, but I just wouldn't want to tell somebody who didn't really quite know how to draft yet. Just draft the absolute nut version of your deck, you mm. know, and everything in that direction and then watch them get cut, you know, from the player right. <laughs> passing to them and them just like, banging their head against a wall when at some point they should have said, okay, I need some powerful magic cards in this deck. So I have a chance to like pick up a few wins, you know, yeah. that type well, of that thing. actually but, is a yeah. great point because the, the one thing we didn't touch on, and we've talked about it in other episodes where we've covered vector theory in the past, but one thing we didn't touch on today is how this method of thinking or kind of this communication model as Ben was kind of describing it affects pick order in the middle of a draft. Right. So Mm -hmm. you would probably want to be taking cards that have the widest range of vectors directions early on because it keeps you open. Uh, That's right. And you kind of adjust as you go and and use it that way to kind of narrow down the direction that you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that Ben, because then once you get a direction. Now you're asking the question, how do I maximize? Right. Not how good is this card or that people think, but like, how can I really make this thing? um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you could also apply this to something like Vintage Cube, where okay. you can say where Vintage Cube, sometimes you'll hear it described as like, well, you can do anything you want because everything's good. It's wide open. And we'd also tend to find that in Modern Limited, we tend to enjoy sets most when there are a lot of vector options. Yeah. There's not that stuff like uh, like in Wilds of Eldraine, where there were those um, insert cards that were traps. Yeah. And in Vintage Cube, there's not a lot of traps right everything kind of has that high high floor and you do get to kind of pick the vector direction that you go down and let's say i don't know you first pick uh today in in lsv's draft video he first picked uh library of alexandria and he yeah I, said, wa- okay, I watched it too yeah i i take a library i want cheap interaction uh i want ramp i want moxins things like that and so what he did was he identified a card he described its vector and then he drafted with that in mind. Absolutely. And, uh, that's the type of thing that, uh, again, he could have first picked other cards too. A, a fetch land, which leaves you wide open because that goes in, in points in plenty of directions. Uh, he, he Actually, I think he mentioned in the video as well that like Gaia's Cradle and um, Oath of Druids, these two are green all-stars, green cards that can win the game by themselves but you'd never put them in the same deck. Not a, not a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, their, their directions are totally different, but their strengths are both very strong. Totally. And they're both green. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas a newer player might say, Oh, two good green rare cards. Yeah. I, I better put these in the same deck. Well, you're definitely onto something here. I mean, they're, they're, this is, this is good stuff. This is definitely taking a step in the right direction for sure. And I think that even in its current form, it's quite useful. And I think that there's even another step that it could take, uh, you know, again, aiming a little more towards the not new, new drafters, but people really looking to improve. You know, I think that there's a little bit of room there too. Well, thank you. Yeah. 
Well, I think with that, let's uh, we'll move on to kind of the, the wrap-up portions of the show. Uh, listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Dorigan, who asks, how often do you play limited in paper? Hmm. Marshall, why don't, why don't you start us off with that? Play much limited in paper these days? Almost never. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I that's the case the for me. <laughs> yeah, but but since COVID, it, it, the draft groups kind of went away for the most part. And also... I mean, I, I don't mind playing in paper. Like I'm not, I know some people are super into it where it's like, that's the experience for them. And they don't really get that out of online, but I get most of what I want from online. Um, mm. The inefficiency of drafting in paper really stings after you've drafted online for three years straight or whatever, where you're just mm. like, Oh my God, like we're still not even at a deck build. And I'm like, I've been yeah. done for 15 <laughs> minutes and you know, and then it's like, you're all sitting around waiting for one match to finish. And it's just, you know, those things, you really have to be there for the hangs, you know, not, not for yeah. the magic part of it. Yeah. And that's fine. I, I like that part too, but generally I'd like to do that with like my group of friends, you know, and like I said, that hasn't happened as much. Um, so, you know, for me, it's not very common that I draft in paper these days. I think that I'm open to it. It's just not like part of the routine anymore, but I draft all the time yeah. online. So, yeah. And yeah. it's interesting too, as content creators, you kind of need to get your reps in and it's a lot harder to do that in person than, than that's just exactly right. Open your phone or your iPad or your laptop or whatever. Yeah. I've um, heard lots of content creators talk about the pre-release in those terms too. Cause it's like, I can right. do like one sealed or whatever, or I can come home and jam like 10 drafts and actually know what's going on. So yep. yeah. Yeah, it depends what you're trying to maximize, I guess. As much as I love going to the local game store and, as you said, you know, palling around, the LGS is like 20 minutes away and then you got to <laughs> get there. And then it starts like at seven. So you eat dinner before, but I had school that day and I was yeah. tutoring after. So it, it, or I could just, you know, play an arena open on my phone. Right. <laughs> That's just, right. Uh, which is honestly awesome. Yeah, I will say, I think the only time I really play in paper anymore is uh, Ben and I have a few friends that are kind of vocal to us that do cube days. So we'll, a few people bring their cubes and then we'll just hang out and spend yeah. basically a whole day cubing. And that's a lot of fun. Totally. Mm -hmm. I know. I know Luis has that uh, in Denver as well, where he doesn't get out to draft that much in in paper either, but they, they have a cube and, and that's a thing, of course. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns style segment where we share a high and a low from the past week. Ben, why don't you kick us off with this, and then we'll go around the table and wrap things up. Sure thing. My uh, my Teferi. I had some some big high points this week. I actually was on a a bachelor trip this past weekend to uh, glorious Tampa, Florida. Just really <laughs> fascinating experience <laughs> all around. Uh, did some sailing, laid on the beach for a bit. Uh, but the true highlight, my my Teferi of Teferis, I shook hands with Hulk Hogan, who. <laughs> Really? apparently he just has a, a bar down there and a, it's called hogan's hangout he just hangs out <laughs> at, at hogan's hangout I, I put a picture in discord of me uh shaking hands and, and you know that thing you do when you go to like put your arms around each other for a for a picture and you both kind of go to put your arm above someone else yeah i big dogged him I big dogged Hulk Hogan. I put my arm over his. <laughs> I said to myself, I'm never getting to do this again. And man, when I shook his hand, it was like, it was like he was made of stone. That guy was so shredded still to this day. Man, it was something else. Uh, real, wow. real, real Teferi for this week. Uh, my tibble, cool. uh, my tibble is that uh, teaching can be, can be kind of rough. I've had some students who are 
not performing uh, like I had kind of hoped they would. And um, it, it's okay to have students that, that aren't doing great. I, every teacher has them. But what's really a bummer is when you pull out every trick of your book and it still feels like you haven't been able to to reach them. I've had a couple students this year where I know they have complex home lives and that they really have shut down in school for certain reasons and they have, you know, tons of pressures and, and weights on them. And it feels as though nothing I can do has really helped alleviate those. And there's nothing worse than than, you know, feeling like you're ineffective at your passion. <laughs> So yeah, that's I, tough. I'd say I have a couple cases like that this year. Plenty of success cases, but it's those those ones that, that stick with you most where, uh, you know, there's still room for growth. So I've got a whole school year left to try to work with these kids. And, uh, well, I'm going to start a magic uh, magic club at the school. So I'm hoping that oh, can move a couple of them in. <laughs> sweet. Marshall, how about you? Um, so this is like something good that happened to me this week and something bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Teferi, very good. Tibble, very bad. Okay. So my Teferi uh, would be that I finally launched a website that I've been working on for like over a year. It's for my watch stuff, the watch YouTube channel. But I, I had this idea that I wanted to make like toolkits so that if people wanted to try watchmaking as a hobby, which is you know, what I'm doing on the channel, that it's really hard when you first get there it's kind of like getting into magic. There's like a whole lot of words you need to learn. There's a whole lot of things you need to get, you know, that it can feel overwhelming and the the tools can be expensive and there's a lot of different versions available and it can be really difficult to sort out. So I wanted to make these kits, you know, where like I picked all the tools in there to help people, uh, you know, get into the hobby a little bit easier. And then also I fixed the watches on the YouTube channel and I wanted to sell them. Um, and I didn't have a really great avenue to do that because since they've been on a video, like sometimes people really connect with them and they're willing to pay quite a bit more for it, but it's hard to just like set a price on it, you know, and, but then eBay can be kind of a pain. So we ended up, uh, I paired up with a friend of mine and we started a, a website and th- we worked on it for like over a year and we finally launched it this week. So that part felt really, really good. It's awesome. Um, probably the same thing. <laughs> for the downside, (laughs) like starting a website's hard, man. Like I, wow, it's so much work. And then, you know, you guys are content creators. So, you know, this feeling is when you put a lot into something and then you kind of put it out into the world. And sometimes there's that kind of sinking feeling where you're like, Oh my God, what if they hate it? You know, just like, what if this is the dumbest thing that I've ever partaken on? And I had all these ideas and this vision in my head and it just, flops right and it's just Mm -hmm. like wow i hope that doesn't happen and it's going okay so i guess it didn't but that was i definitely had that moment uh when when we launched the site where i was like oh my god like (laughs) i just sort of had been operating under the assumption that this was going to work well and it you know like because you kind of have to right if you're going to work on something for that long but at some point i was like oh yeah it might not and uh so i had to kind of you know plow through that and just put my head down and get back to work so yeah, especially if it downs. takes that long to put together right I that's mean, right that, that's the main that's thing add pressure. I, i've been talking about it for a long time to you know it's just been one of those things where it's like i have enough hype in my head about it you know that i didn't want it to to go poorly so mm-hmm. yeah big week for that awesome i uh that's I, I can definitely relate to what you're saying i mean i just 
I just shared for like an hour about a, a little heuristic I came up with with the Marshall Sutcliffe. So <laughs> <laughs> if that doesn't count. For yeah, but you asked me to come on and tear it down. Like, you're, you're going uh, yeah. crazy. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we asked for this, right? <laughs> Indeed. But, uh, no, that, that, that's awesome. And um, I guess I was, I was wondering, like, as, as far as, I, I guess this is to, to go meta on the, the content creation side. Uh, you having also done this with LR and now with the Watch Channel, do you ever feel that moment of, oh, it is all fine? Like, people do love it. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, because the, the interesting thing for me is that my approach to starting new endeavors like this is actually quite a bit different emotionally from what I've done uh, on this on the website that we launched. Because the website, it has, well, A, it has a bunch of money put into it. So there's that expectation where it's not like, I, I mean, sure, if it failed, I, I'll be okay, but like, I wouldn't be happy. Right. Mm -hmm. But also like, I've got this followership, you know, in the watch space and I want to be able to point them to this thing. And, but there's no guarantee that they'll care or that the things that I made are interesting or have a market or whatever. But when I made LR with Ryan way back in the day, we just put it out. Like we didn't have an expectation. We weren't, you know, we didn't sit in a room and say, well, we're going to try to do this. And we have all these goals. It was like, this could be useful to some people. Let's put it out. Mm -hmm. And it caught on. I've also put out stuff that hasn't caught on, you know, or that it has, but hasn't grown to the point that I wanted to keep doing it. You know, and with the watch channel, it was the same thing. I just started it because I wanted to, I had no plans. Like I did not sit down and say, okay, I want this many views or this much money or these things to happen, but I don't work that way. So normally I just sort of make a thing and set it free. And if it, if it finds an audience and it's worth it, then maybe I'll, I'll keep going at it. And if not, I'll try something else just cause I like to build stuff and make stuff. But this was different, you know, cause this one mm -hmm. was like, no, I like, if this doesn't fly at all, it sucks. Like it's actually really crappy, you know? So it does feel different when I feel it with LR and with the watch stuff is if I put a ton of extra time into a piece of content, if it's something I'm really excited about or that I think is going to really resonate with people that watch my stuff and then it doesn't that that's a bummer, you know, that I'm just like, sure. Oh, I missed. And I think, you know, if you do content creation for any amount of time, you realize that it's fairly unpredictable. You know, people will ask me, well, do you know when a video is going to do well? And what I say is yes, in the sense of like, it, if I have a high degree of confidence about what a video is going to do either well or poorly or in the middle, and you take like 10 of them, I'll probably be right on like seven or eight, but mm -hmm. on any one video, no way. Like I have, you know, <laughs> I have a decent track record overall, but I definitely have had videos that I put way extra work on and thought they'd really be awesome. And it's like average. You know, mm -hmm. and then I've had videos that I was like, uh, I'm not really happy with this. This thing sucks. And it's like the fourth most viewed video. I have, <laughs> I have no yep. idea why, you know, so yep. it, it's, it's, you know, it is very difficult to predict. And with a thing like a website, it's kind of doing a thing and it's like, it either is going to work or it's not, we can pivot a little bit, but it's kind of like, you know, I've got a bunch of tools sitting in the office that we use from Switzerland. Like those aren't going back. <laughs> you know, it's like we got to find a way to to make those things work or or not. You know, there's no real, you know, take it or yeah. leave it about that. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think it's really cool that the first time we had you on this show, when we were like three months in, 
we didn't know what the hell we were doing. No, you guys were really, really new. Yeah. And you gave us a lot of great advice and it, it, it has seemingly worked for us as far as we can tell. I mean, we similarly, we made this show because we wanted to and we yeah. put it out there and um, we've put a lot of hard work and I think we got lucky too along the way. And it's cool to see that in the time since that happened, you took your own advice again and we're again <laughs> immensely successful with it. So, I mean, <laughs> I do follow my own advice. <laughs> yeah. And I, if you want a real, te a real tested model, forget vector theory, just go do what makes you happy, put it out in the world. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's right. No, it's true though. I, I, I do walk the walk. Like I, when people ask me for advice on stuff like that, like you guys did, I always, you know, try to put it under the framework of this is how I do it. And this is what has worked for me. You know, I don't, I don't have a vector theory for content. I don't have the all encompassing, <laughs> you know, but I do have, you know, on the, you know, boots on the ground experience. And I also have a lot of in, intuition about it too, from having done it. And also, you know, when you're in a space for long enough, you know, you guys have been around now long enough as magic podcasters to have seen many podcasts and endeavors start and leave, mm. right? Yeah. Where you kind of go, oh, maybe I should be doing that. Or, you know, wow, they're, they got that many followers that quick, you know, and, but they're doing these like dumb hype things or these, you mm. know, these superficial, just like short-term thinking things. And then it's like, yeah, get back to me in a year and a half, right? And, and tell me if you still feel jealous or if you still feel that, are we supposed to be doing that vibe? And it's like, oh, they're not even here anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I didn't. What, what happened to that? You know, it's like you don't even think about it anymore when these things just fall off the map. Even if sometimes they have a a, a start that's reasonable, you know. Definitely. Well, Marshall, thank you so much for coming on and going really deep with us, uh, sharing this this whole vector theory thing. I I have found that it's. A bit, a bit of a curse of knowledge. And uh, thank you for allowing yourself to, to take on the, the burden of this curse yeah, as well. I, I can't leave without hearing Zach's week. Like, I needed, yeah, I came just here gonna, just to find out how his week it. was going, Ben. Like, come I on. I This is my big payoff at the end. <laughs> what happened? Like, I got a burrito and it kind of made me feel sick. Like, what, what was it? I had uh, I actually, guess we can let Zach talk. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Let's me out of my cage every once in a while. Um, I did have, I had an exceptional weekend though. Um, I went to see the, the new, uh, the new hunger games movie, oh, which oh, was yeah. actually quite good. And I binged the book two days beforehand. So I was able to kind of do the compare contrasting and I'm a big film nerd. So it was kind of fun to do that. And then I had a massive friends giving, uh, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, um, mm. with like, yeah, it was like 30 people and it was just a great time. Way too much food was consumed. And, uh, that was, that was the highlight of my week for sure. Um, my Tybalt, the downside is that this upcoming week is really busy, um, with travel and just making sure to see all the different friends and family and stuff over Thanksgiving holiday here in the U S. So, um, yeah, we have a lot on my plate, <laughs> both literally and figuratively, uh, nice. coming up this week. Then that was totally worth the wait, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was late, yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for listening we really do appreciate you sticking with us and um again if you aren't already in the discord do check that out it's the best place to be to chat with us and we'd love to see those bounties start coming in as well as the trophies our discord has been firing on all cylinders in terms of trophies 
uh, over the last week with this set coming out. So definitely check that out. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Again, huge thanks to everybody who supports us over there. You guys rock. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at draft pod and Marshall, where can people find you? What are you up to? We'll throw all the links um, to all the things in our. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, anything well. related to the uh, podcast is lrcast.com. And then I'm Marshall underscore LR on, you know, the social media stuff. Awesome. Thanks folks. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Okay, one quick thing before we go. It is Thanksgiving week in the U.S. Uh, Marshall, I, I have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. What does your ideal Thanksgiving plate look like? Oh, that's a great question because Luis is doing Thanksgiving no turkey. That's the way. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm so oh, into yes. that. Yeah. So he he's he's on the you know I'm over it plan. Um, for me, my family. So it's a little weird. But crab, whole crab, like we break them apart at the table with our hands and some, you know, nutcracker things Uh, because my family is from out here and, you know, they're very like my grandpa had a boat and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and it for some reason these days usually gets paired with mac and cheese. Hmm. Okay, not in it like it's side dish style. And then, you know, some vegetables and some rolls and stuff like that. So even though it's very non-traditional, we often do this for Christmas and then just do the normal stuff for Thanksgiving. But occasionally we'll, we'll bust out the, the, whole, the whole crabs for, uh, for Thanksgiving as well. And then the question becomes, are you the type of person that opens up the crab and eats it as you go? Or are you the type of person that makes a big pile and puts in all the work up front and then eats it? And I'm going to eat as you go. There's no way I'm waiting for a, for a pile. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Same here. <laughs>